Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Patricia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in January in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now the Quadrantids is the first major annual meteor shower of the year with up to 120 meteors per hour at the peak. Now although the Quadrantids become active in late December, they peak on the night of the 3rd and 4th of January, but are all but gone by the 12th. Now the best time to spot meteors is after 1am as the moon will have set below the horizon and at this time the radiant will be above the northeastern horizon. The Quadrantids is one of the only showers to be associated with the debris of an asteroid rather than a comet. The parent body is asteroid 2003 EH1, which takes five and a half years to orbit our Sun. Now, the shower is also slightly odd as it's not named after a modern day constellation like many of the others. It owes its name to a now defunct constellation of Quadrans Muralis, which was left off the list of constellations accepted by the IAU, or the International Astronomical Union, in 1922. As we continue through the winter months, the constellations of Orion and Taurus will dominate the southern sky. Use the trio of stars in Orion's belt as pointers to the red giant star Aldebaran and the Pleiades, an open cluster of stars located higher in the sky. The belt also points to Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky which will be closer to the horizon. On the 7th of January, the waxing gibbous moon will be placed by Aldebaran, making these constellations and the bright stars within them easier to find. Aldebaran, a red giant star, is the future fate of our sun, which will bloat up, expand, cool and turn redder, but not for about another four and a half billion years. But if Aldebaran was the star in our solar system, its surface would extend out to the orbit of Mercury. Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion is a red supergiant star instead, and if that star was a star in our solar system, its surface would extend out past the orbit of Mars and into the asteroid belt. Now the full moon occurs on the 10th of January. Keen observers may notice that the moon appears a bit fainter, as it will also be a penumbral lunar eclipse. This is when the moon passes behind the Earth into its shadow, but only through the Earth's penumbra, so it is only partly shadowed by it. Now the penumbral lunar eclipse will begin shortly after 5pm, following the moon's rising in the eastern part of the sky, and will reach its maximum at about 10 past 7 in the evening. The event will draw to a close by quarter past 9, so it can be caught in its entirety from the UK. But noticing any difference during a penumbral lunar eclipse can be very difficult. Eclipses usually come in pairs though. A solar eclipse usually occurs two weeks before or after a lunar eclipse. This lunar eclipse was the second in the pair. There was actually an annular solar eclipse on Boxing Day just gone. However, it wasn't visible from the UK. Mars is one of the naked eye planets to look for, appearing in the southeast before the sun rises, 
But due to its distance from the Earth at this point in its orbit, it appears quite small and will be much better place for viewing when it reaches opposition later this year. Nevertheless, it's still worth spotting and it appears beside the bright red star Antares in the constellation of Scorpius. Due to both Mars and Antares appearing a reddish colour, they can sometimes be confused with one another. Antares translates as anti-Mars, meaning the rival or equivalent of Mars for this very reason. Antares will appear closer to the horizon than Mars, but on the morning of January 20th, the thin waning crescent moon will join the pair in the pre-dawn sky. And Venus is another brilliant planet to spot throughout the month. If you wait until the sun sets, look towards the southwest. Being the brightest planet, and brighter than many other stars, it will no doubt be the first star-like point you see, and as such, it's sometimes known as the evening star. Now, towards the end of the month, Venus will be even better placed, setting almost four hours after the sun, giving you plenty of time to spot it. By then, Mercury will be getting close to its greatest eastern elongation, making it easier to view too. And if you wait until the 27th of January, the brightest and dimmest planets will appear together in the sky. That's Venus and Neptune. Even through a pair of good binoculars, Neptune won't appear as more than a small pale blue dot, but the duo may be visible together in the early evening on the 27th after the skies darken. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our Cosmic News. So hello everyone, welcome back to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. For those of you that are new listeners, this is the part of the podcast where myself and Patricia pick a new story that we found in the previous month that has really excited us uh, and that we want to share with you guys and kind of break down the science behind them. I'd like to first of all wish everyone a very happy new year um, and I think we've got two great stories hopefully to start off our podcast for the new year and Patricia we're going to get you to start off first so what is it that you've picked for your January story? Well my story this month is about the enigmatic moon of Saturn it's moon Titan and although we're listening to this podcast story in January I'm going to keep the festive season spirit going just a little bit longer. You're keeping those 12 days of Christmas going. I'm doing my very best to do that um, because in today's story, we'll be exploring Christmas past, Christmas just past, and Christmas future. Okay. So it's a very interesting story. And as with all stories, we'll begin by setting the scene. So Titan is the largest moon of Saturn, and it is the only moon in the entire solar system that we know about that has a substantial atmosphere, an atmosphere so thick and hazy that you cannot see the surface of Titan using visual wavelengths of light. So in other words, if you're on a spacecraft and you're orbiting Titan, you will not be able to see 
any features on the ground because of this really hazy atmosphere. And that is quite weird for a moon, right? You mentioned that we haven't found any other moon that has a thick atmosphere. Yeah. And in fact, we have planets like Mercury and Mars that don't have much of an atmosphere at all either. So it makes it particularly exciting, I guess. It does. And you might be wondering, well, how can you really study something that you can't see? Because obviously a lot of the observations we do, we like to look at things and because we're astronomers, we'd like to study in more than one wavelength of light. And if we take ourselves back to a point where we were sort of just working with those visual observations, what we had known from observations, both ground-based, in other words, using telescopes here on the Earth, but also from spacecraft that actually flew past Saturn, we eventually figured out that the atmosphere of Titan actually consists of nitrogen and methane. So it's a very interesting sort of mix there at Titan. But something that we didn't know was, does that hazy atmosphere actually extend all the way down to the surface of Titan? Or is it just sort of like a little sort of cloud layer sort of surrounding the moon? And also based on those ground-based observations and from the spacecraft observations, we've, we know it's quite cold on Titan. Minus 179 degrees Celsius, so just a bit cold. And um, because of those cold temperatures, because of what the atmosphere is composed of, scientists at the time were actually speculating that those cold temperatures meant that it was possible that Titan could actually be home to oceans of liquid hydrocarbons. So it's so cold that you could actually have liquid methane on the ground on Titan. But again, this was based on the observations that we had on the time. Then... In 1994, we have the Hubble Space Telescope, which is brilliant. Hubble actually looked with a different wavelength of light. It used infrared light, and that actually allowed it to pierce through the haze just a little bit. And we realized that Titan sort of has these large and bright dark areas on its surface. But at the time, you know, what does that mean? Why are we seeing these darker and brighter patches there on Titan? So that kind of gives you some backdrop to Titan itself and how much we knew about it up to that point. But then it was a very special day, Christmas Day 2004, when a very special lander called Huygens was released from NASA's Cassini spacecraft and actually began a three-week journey to Titan. So I kind of like to think of Cassini in a similar spirit to Santa delivering a present all the way to Titan. So as I said, I'm going to be pushing this festive I can tell. Festive season. I bet but, uh, Titan was happy with the little gift. I'm sure it was. It's this cute little present from the Earth making its way towards Titan. And good news, which I'm sure everyone knows, but if you didn't know, Huygens did land successfully on Titan and was the first, and as a matter of fact, to this day is still the only landing of a spacecraft we've actually made in the outer solar system. It turned out that the haze on Titan actually extends quite a long way and only cleared up at about 30 kilometers above the surface of Titan, so quite a substantial layer of haze. But what was really exciting was that the images actually revealed that the surface of Titan was covered in dried riverbeds and lakes and that there were plateaus that had these sort of large channels cut into it, which looked very much like drainage networks you find here on the Earth. So wherever you have a river flowing or you've had a body of water, it sort of made, it's carved its way into the ground and you had these drainage channels where 
a liquid once flowed. So it's getting very exciting thinking back to the fact that scientists had speculated that you could have a liquid on Titan. And then there's some evidence there now. And there's tantalizing evidence, but even better actually was the image that Huygens took of its landing site. Because in this image, there were pebbles on the ground. But not pebbles made from rock. These are pebbles made from water ice. Because in those frigid temperatures, water ice actually behaves like rock. And these pebbles were smooth. And you only get that smoothing on pebbles if they've been rolling around in a liquid. So here on the earth, if you've ever been down to a beach and there's lots of pebbles, pebbles are smooth. They've been weathered down because they've been in a liquid that's sort of so just like when you have your river that starts off, you've got the jagged rocks and stones, and as they make their way down the river towards the delta in the sea, precisely. they're eroded and rounded. Yeah. So now you're seeing evidence that something has weathered these pebbles down on the surface of Titan. So it turns out, based on those observations that Huygens did, but also in Cassini itself, the Cassini spacecraft, found that there is liquid on Titan. There are actually lakes on Titan. And yes, there are lakes of methane and ethane. So we can't go swimming in them? No. But this is amazing because in addition to Titan being the only moon with an atmosphere, it's now the only other solar system body that has a liquid on its surface. So the Earth has liquid water, Titan has liquid methane. No other body that we know about has a liquid on its, on its surface. surface. So very exciting. But now we venture into the Christmas that has just passed because scientists have been working through the data that Cassini returned and there's, there's an enormous amount of data that they're working through. And they were looking at the lake regions on Titan and they noticed that sometimes there were these bright spots that appeared in the lakes. They'd be there for a while and then when Cassini re-imaged the area, the bright spots were gone. So this was very strange and scientists actually called these features magic islands because they appeared and then they disappeared. disappeared. And they started to think, well, what if those bright spots that they're seeing are actually sudden outbursts of nitrogen bubbles? So in other words, you have fizzy lakes on Titan. You're making it sound like a fizzy drink now. We are entering into fizzy drink territory here. So obviously trying to figure out, would it of course be possible to have fizzing lakes on Titan? So scientists were able to sort of have a simulated Titan here on Earth and they put down some methane and ethane and a little bit of nitrogen thrown in because we know that that's all there. And through a bit of trial and error, they eventually found the correct combination of methane, ethane, and nitrogen that produces nitrogen bubbles. And they found that because it's so cold on Titan, what happens is the nitrogen that is in the atmosphere can actually end up being dissolved into that liquid methane. So during rain, because yes, it rains on Titan, but not water. Again, we're talking methane, liquid methane. methane. And they realized that if that liquid methane that has this nitrogen dissolved into it, all of a sudden comes into contact with an ethane-rich liquid, 
that nitrogen just sort of separates out of the solution and produces bubbles. So it's very much like the fizz that results when you open a can of soda. So just as you said, so it tightens kind of like a little fizzing, bubbling place. But again, we can't swim in it and we definitely can't drink it. No, I would advise strongly against drinking it. But interestingly, so they realized, okay, you can have nitrogen bubbles released when that happens. But again, through experimenting and running these simulations, they also found that nitrogen bubbles can also be released if the methane warms a bit. Now, Titan has seasons too. So you have seasons on Titan, which results in slightly warmer temperatures, slightly cooler temperatures. So they realize that during seasonal changes, you could have these nitrogen bubbles appearing during certain seasons. But those bubbles, as cute as they may sound, they could potentially pose a problem for future missions to Titan. So now let's move to Christmas future. A, a potential future Christmas, let's go for it. So NASA have announced a dedicated mission to Titan, a mission called Dragonfly. Nice. And it's scheduled to launch in 2026. And it will arrive on Titan in about in around 2034. So it's still a way away and it's going to take a while to get there. Now, Dragonfly is actually going to be a, a sort of large multi-rotor drone that's going to fly around Titan. So we're going to have a drone flying around Titan. And the idea is by being able to fly, it can explore more locations. So it can head out, it can map the area even better at locations that they choose, the little drone will actually land and it's going to sample the surface at various locations around Titan to sort of determine the composition to kind of see what's really happening on this moon. Of course, it's exciting to think of what Dragonfly might discover, but let's take one leap further into the future to a mission that would have a submarine component to it. Oh, wow. And that submarine, its sole purpose is to explore the lakes on Titan. I now wish the, people could see like the glint in your eye right now, how excited you are about this. I really, really love this kind of stuff. And um, I like to think of the kind of things that we will be able to do at some point in the future. But the submarine idea is great. And I think they're certainly going to look at employing it perhaps at the icy moons of Jupiter. But Titan, those bubbles that I spoke about, those nitrogen bubbles, well, if you have a submarine probe, that's naturally going to give off a little bit of heat, which means you could end up with bubbles forming around your submarine probe. And that would make it really difficult to actually steer a submarine as you're having all these bubbles sort of popping up around it. But let's assume by that point that the engineers have planned for all of this and they've thought through this and they've designed a submarine that would be able to navigate even if these nitrogen bubbles are popping all around them. So you might be wondering, well, what's the purpose of a submarine mission to explore the lakes? Well, it would be to search for life because as strange as it may sound, it is possible that those hydrocarbon lakes on Titan just might have conditions perfect for life. Life as we know it, or perhaps life as we don't know it. 
That's the weird thing, because we always talk about life as we know it on the Earth, and we talk about liquid water and perhaps other kind of biosignatures. And Titan has certain biosignatures. It's got the nitrogen, it's got carbon and hydrogen. Not liquid water, but perhaps that's not necessary for life, at least a different type of life that we might not have even considered yet. So it's strange to think, and also quite exciting to think that one day... Perhaps that search for life here inside our solar system. I know we've been looking at Mars, but who knows what's lurking in the lakes on Titan. I want to take us several futures in, or several years into the future to a different Christmas where we could sit here and you could record another podcast with me. And you're like, guess what, Dara? You know that story we did like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. There's actually something new to add to it, which would be brilliant. Awesome story, Patricia. So maybe I can try and beat yours this month. Now... I don't know how much you're into your sports, but actually uh, last month, Anthony Joshua regained his heavyweight title. So big in the boxing world. Um, now my story is not about boxers whatsoever, but I thought it was a really nice analogy to add in because boxers like Joshua and Ruiz, his opponent last month, they can often lose their fight and lose their titles, but then come back to regain that champion status. In astronomy, though, we more often than not have the case of something bigger and better comes along, takes that champion status and keeps it until something even bigger and better comes along. And that's what I've chosen for my story this month. We've got exactly that. A new heavyweight champion, not in the world of boxing, but instead in the heart of Able 85. And that is a cluster of galaxies in our local universe. Um, so to give you an idea about this cluster, it's about 700 million light years away from us. That's, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. I, we've talked about this several times, about how large distances in space are. Um, and this cluster has more than 500 galaxies in total. So just like the Milky Way belongs to its own kind of local cluster or local supercluster, um, this group of galaxies is very different to our own. But there are about 500 galaxies there. And near the centre is one very dominant central galaxy. And it's called Holmberg 15a. It is a super giant elliptical galaxy. So we have our Milky Way, a spiral galaxy. Kind of most of the stars, the material residing in the disk and the spiral arms. Elliptical galaxies I like to think of as egg-shaped galaxies. So the ones that are a bit more spherical yeah. in shape. Now, even though black holes appear in many different shapes and sizes uh, and masses as well, there is um, an ultra-massive black hole with a mass of 40 billion times the mass of our sun lying in the middle of that central dominant galaxy. So we need to put this in context for yes. people because... If you know black hole masses in terms of what we find in the center of galaxies, that is enormous. Even when we think about stellar black holes, so stellar black holes could be a few times the mass of our sun, still very, very dense, big objects. We've got the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, four million times the mass of our sun. Um, there are galaxies out there with a few billion times the mass of our sun contained within their central black holes. We're talking about 40 billion. Now this makes it the most massive black hole known today in our local universe. And it is crazy. This galaxy 
has uh, a mass that is equivalent to two trillion sun-like stars. Put that into perspective, our galaxy has two to four hundred billion stars. Yeah. We're talking about trillions of stars here. But the problem is that the centre of this galaxy, when they kind of first started spotting it, was that it was very diffuse and very faint. When we look at pictures of our galaxy, the Milky Way, we realise that the centre of our galaxy is very bright, filled with lots and lots of stars very close together that make them very difficult to yeah. kind of separate. Now, the central diffuse region inside this galaxy is about the size of the large Magellanic Cloud. This is a dwarf galaxy that is orbiting around the Milky Way, but actually it's about 15,000 light years across. Yes, it's astonishing to think. And again, we find really massive objects in our universe, but when you can sort of say, oh, we could actually fit a galaxy inside another one. In just the central in region. In just the central region, it's, you can't even begin to comprehend those kind of scales. And for that very reason, when it was first suggested that there was this huge core to this galaxy 15,000 light years across, it was actually refuted. Some scientists believed that it, it wasn't actually the case. So when they take the light profile of this galaxy, you basically get the central region being a very low surface brightness to a certain point, and then obviously it dies away. Whereas most other galaxies have a very bright central region and then that dies off towards the edges of that galaxy. But the fact that this central region is very diffuse, uh, has very low surface brightness, means that actually most of the stars uh, that were at the centre of this galaxy have somehow been sort of thrown out the central region to leave behind this very diffuse low brightness region. And it's most likely from the result or the interactions from a previous merging galaxy. Ah, interesting. So we currently understand, or what scientists currently believe, is that when two massive elliptical galaxies merge, the central black holes act as like gravitational slingshots. And they basically send stars out from the centre of that newly formed galaxy. So they basically slingshot them out into big wide orbits. And that means that you've got lots of stars cleared out the central region. And if there is very little gas left at the, the centre too, it means that you can't have new stars forming as you usually do in younger galaxies. And that means the core becomes completely depleted. There are stars that have been thrown out and new stars that can't really be born. And every time a galaxy merges like this, the black hole at the centre obviously gains mass because it's gaining two supermassive black holes merging into one. Um, and the galaxy centre loses its stars because they're being slingshot out. out. Yeah. So there are only actually a few dozen black holes um, which have direct mass measurements. As you can imagine, being called a black hole, they're very difficult to detect. And it also means that scientists struggle to determine properties about them, like their mass. There are very few, a few dozen perhaps, that we have detected, but actually we've never been able to directly measure or estimate the mass of a supermassive black hole at this distance. Yeah. We're talking 700 million light years away. I think the previous... Uh, kind of distance record we have for the measurement of the mass of a black hole is about half that distance. So we've wow. doubled the distance yeah. now that we've been able to measure the mass of a black hole at. 
Now, you can actually hazard a guess as to the mass of a black hole indirectly. So some people or some scientists look at the, the population of stars and they measure, as they can see the stars, the mass of them. And that can give them an indication of the size of the supermassive black hole that might lie at the centre. Or you can look at the velocity of the stars and how they travel around the centre of the galaxy. And just like we have the relationship between planets and their orbital period around our sun, we can look at the velocity of stars around a supermassive black hole, which isn't itself visible, but from their speed or their velocity, work out how much mass must be contained within that black hole. So from that, astronomers actually already had an idea about the size of the black hole in this galaxy, but of course no direct measurement had ever been made. It's incredibly far away. Now in this case, the mass was estimated by using the motions of stars around the core of this galaxy, basically using that method of Kepler's relationship between the velocity and uh, the period, the time that those stars take to go around that object. And it's from that that they calculated the mass must be 40 billion times the mass of our sun, which was actually much bigger uh, or a larger result than they had actually expected from their indirect methods. Now, astronomers could actually use this newly found relationship to help us measure the mass of other black holes. So when we look at the mass of a black hole, that's related, we can tell now, to its brightness. The larger that supermassive black hole is, the more it seems like the central inner region is of low surface brightness. It's very diffuse. So we can use that relationship to actually start helping us estimate the mass of a black hole when we can't look at the population of stars yeah. to determine the mass or we can't find the individual stars orbiting around to measure their velocity. So I think going forward, this is a really, really interesting case of being able to use a new method to, to help us find a bit more about black holes and where they appear and their masses too. I think this is really timely because we are starting to detect and learn a lot more about black holes, which is great because when we get visitors here at the observatory, there's always a question there about black holes. There is always a question about it, yeah. And it's nice that we have more to talk about and there's more things coming up. So last year in April, we had that brilliant announcement of the first ever image of the black hole in that galaxy M87. And actually, to compare its supermassive black hole, it's only six and a half billion times oh, the mass of our sun. That's puny compared seems, to, to what we've just discovered. I mean, that's amazing to think it about. It definitely does. But actually, we consider M87 to be a monstrous galaxy. So the size of this one completely outshadows it. Um, but that image, for those of you who have seen it, shows that bright halo of material around the perfectly dark, region at the centre representing the, uh, the black hole, that halo is actually caused by superheated gas that is falling into the black hole and it's producing light in the process. And actually that light from the material falling into that supermassive black hole outshines the light of the billions of stars within M87, that galaxy, which is why it's possible for us to detect that black hole from the Earth. But even though we've made those big, great advancements, there are still many more questions that remain. One of them is that some black holes we know have actually grown to be billions of times the mass of our sun in less than one billion years from the Big Bang. And according to our current models, that is not possible to have huge supermassive black holes forming in such a short time. But it could be 
that uh, there are other methods or other things that might have happened to describe this. So they say that in the time of one billion years after the Big Bang, it's likely that we've only got black holes up to about 100,000 times the mass of our sun forming. But perhaps supergiant stars that once formed in the very early parts of our universe, maybe they provided the seeds to these supermassive black holes the problem is, even though they've determined that these supermassive stars could exist, they've then put them into their simulations to run and see whether they create these supermassive black holes. But the supercomputer technology we have today can actually only model that for about 200 million years. And they want to try and model a billion, a billion. years after yeah. the Big Bang. So today, we actually don't have the computer power to run the entire simulations but they've made a start. So I think there is huge ground to be made here and they're onto something. But in terms of heavyweight titles being won, I've got to give it to this galaxy. 40 billion times the mass of our sun, this huge, super, uh, ultra massive uh, black hole found at the center of our galaxy and a huge record as well to be found and detecting its mass at 700 million light years away so i think we've started off the new year with um some big records and some big breakthroughs as well well it's a great story Darren. i think this month it's going to be a little bit of a stiff competition i think it's going to be tight this month and so there you have it. That is our cosmic news part of the podcast for this month. So two fantastic, interesting and different news stories for everyone to vote on. And you'll find our poll on our Twitter account on at ROG Astronomers in the beginning of the month. So do please keep an eye on the Twitter account and vote for your favorite story. But last month yeah bring us on to last month patricia i really want to know how our stories did so i have the results in front of me fresh off the presses and so last month dara you spoke about how the mass of a galaxy determines how that galaxy spins mm -hmm. and i spoke about the first confirmed detection of water vapor above the surface of europa that was a good one uh, we had a total of 25 votes on our Twitter poll this month. And with 72% of the vote, the winner is the story on Europa. Uh, it was going to be, wasn't it? It was a brilliant story, Patricia. So well done on your win. But I do think it's going to be a very close competition this month. And if you enjoyed our podcast today, certainly do have a look on our SoundCloud account. We have a whole bunch of different podcasts for you to listen to. But that's it for this month. So do join us again next month where we'll take you through the wonders of the night sky. And of course, anything that's broken during the month and our next cosmic podcast. Mm -hmm.